0: of greed. That's going to be page 786 in the Pew Bible, if you've got one of those close to you. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. I'm Joshua. I'm the lead pastor here at Freshwater. Um, our mission as a church is to help people become totally committed followers of Jesus Christ. So if I haven't met you yet, um, I would love to meet you before you leave for the day. That clip, some of you are going to recognize Um, at least that that is Michael Douglas and a very young Charlie Sheen. You may have picked up on that one as well. That's of course from the movie Wall Street, which in 1987 was a huge film. Now before you say 1987, I wasn't even born in 1987. I was only five, okay? So I don't think I have ever, Ron's Throwing stuff at me in the back. I don't think I've ever actually seen that movie, but um, we can all anticipate from that clip what that critically acclaimed movie was all about. It was about a couple of Wall Street brokers, um, stockbrokers, who did whatever it took to make money. And they portrayed themselves as liberators of these companies, but really it's all about greed. And the philosophy of Michael Douglas and the rest of the main characters in that film was exactly what he said, that greed is good. The constant, never-ending desire for more, the lack of satisfaction, the never-have-enough mentality, that it is something that we as a society benefit from. And the question that I want to pose to you today is, is it? Is it something that you and I benefit from? Is it good? Is greed like this God-given desire that God endorses and that God actually encourages in our lives? Or is greed really something that ultimately can destroy us? Or at the very least, greatly hinder our relationship with Jesus Christ? Which one is it? Or maybe is it somewhere in between? Well, before we answer that question, let me tell you why we're talking about this today. Right now, as you can see on the screen, we're in a sermon series. We're working our way through the book of Habakkuk. We are in the fourth week of what's probably going to be a nine-week series. Um, We'll be in this book right up until Easter. Many of us might remember the context of the book. If you've been here over the last weeks, if you're new with us, or if you've missed the last couple weeks, I'll just kind of bring you up to date. Know that Habakkuk is what we refer to as a minor prophet, and that he's not Ezekiel, he's not Jeremiah, he's not Isaiah. Those guys have long books. They're major prophets. But Habakkuk, his book is only three chapters long, and he's therefore referred to as a minor prophet. But he's a man called by God to speak on God's behalf. And this book, as we work our way through it, we learn is primarily a discussion between God and the prophet Habakkuk. So Habakkuk comes into the picture most likely right after King Josiah has died. So remember, King Josiah was the king of Judah. Um, He brought about some of the most significant spiritual reforms that the nation had ever seen. And when he dies, the nation finds itself in chaos. There's a power struggle The country spiritually and economically and politically is beginning to crumble. And Habakkuk looks out over this nation, this nation that God has taken care of and God has provided for, and he is hurt and he is bothered by the lack of holiness. So, so far in our time together, our first week working through the book, Habakkuk asked God, God, how long must I pray before you're going to fix this nation? And God responds by stating, basically, I am at work, Habakkuk. You don't realize this, but I'm raising up this enemy nation known as the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, and I'm eventually going to use them to march into Judah and conquer the country and punish the people that have disobeyed me. Then last week, Habakkuk responds and says, God, how can you use that enemy nation of the Babylonians to punish your people when they're more wicked than we are? And God responds and says what? God basically says, well, Habakkuk, you need to remember that I am God, And because I am God, I get to do whatever I want. But that wasn't the end of God's response to Habakkuk. That response of God responding to Habakkuk, that continues all the way through to the end of chapter 2. But the response enters this period where God is basically mocking the Babylonians. God begins to mock the exact people that God is raising up, And he's going to use to punish the people of Judah. If you've got your Bible open, I'll go ahead and outline this so that you can see where this is going over the next couple of weeks, over the next several weeks. You can basically see there are five taunts. Every one of them God introduces by saying, Woe to him. And then he describes what is wrong with the Babylonians. So you see down in verse 9, it says, Woe to him. And then God talks about the danger of comfort. Then down in verse 12, God says, Woe to him. And then he talks about the danger of ambition. Then down in verse 15, God says, woe to him, and then he talks about the danger of influence. Then down in verse 18, God says, woe to him, and then he talks about the danger of stuff and materialism, and we're going to see all of these as we work through these for the next several weeks. But this week, beginning in verse 6, God talks about the danger of greed. The danger of greed. And just in case you were on the fence, or maybe you've never really thought about it much, the Bible is not silent regarding a position on greed, Although there's nothing inherently wrong with wealth, there's nothing necessarily wrong with having things or even desiring to have things, God would absolutely disagree with Michael Douglas and Charlie Sheen. Greed is seen as being not glorifying to God and really being an assault on the gospel because a greedy heart is a heart that is proclaiming that God is not enough. That we need something more than simply having a relationship with God. And the Babylonians... This nation that God is going to use to punish the people of Judah, according to this text, they're a greedy people. So what we're seeing this morning are three ways that greed creeps into our life. You might initially think, well, I'm not a greedy person. You might think that. That might be your initial response. You're like, this sermon doesn't really apply to me. But maybe as we work through this text, maybe you're going to realize that you really are. And if that happens, I want you to know a couple things. First, there's room at the cross for every single one of us. And secondly, if we will repent and vow to God, God is faithful to forgive us for our sins and help us to live a life that is free from the danger of greed. So here's the first way that greed creeps into your life. If you're doing the filling thing and the outline in your worship guide, here's your first blank. It's through coveting. It's through coveting. To see that, let's look just at that first part of verse 6. What does it say? It says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, and here's your first, woe to him. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Let's stop right there and let's think about this. Remember, God is talking to Habakkuk. This is 2,600 years ago, and God is mocking the Babylonians, this enemy nation, that God is very soon, in just a couple of decades from when this is being uttered, going to raise this nation up and he's going to use them to punish the people of Judah. And we can see a couple things. First, that just because God is going to use this enemy nation of the Babylonians to carry out his will, that doesn't mean that he's necessarily okay with all their actions. That's not what that means at all. But we also see that, that they will be known for heaping up, is what the verse says, heaping up what is not their own. Heaping up, as in like piling up. Think about just an accumulation of stuff, a great deal of something. And the key is that the Babylonians are going to be accustomed to heaping up stuff that doesn't belong to them. The position, the, the picture really, is that they essentially, by force, they take whatever they want. That's really what they're going to be known for. They are covetous of other nations, they're covetous of other people, they're covetous of other people's wealth, so they take it. Now, some of us will remember what coveting is. We maybe learned that in Sunday school as a a child, but many of us, it's a new word. So um, if, if you don't know what to covet mean, coveting something means, it basically means to desire something very strongly. It could be a material item like a car or a house. It might be a person. It might be a a, a position at your employer. It might be a level of authority. It could be packaged differently in each one of our hearts. But to put it another way, coveting is when you want something so badly that you're willing to do absolutely whatever it takes to get it. That's what it means to covet. Now, you may not realize this, but we here in the United States, we have a holiday that has unfortunately basically come to be known as the holiday of coveting. You know the holiday. It might even be your favorite one. I don't know. But it's the day after Thanksgiving. Black Friday, right? They call it every time I see a video of some woman punching some other woman in the face because she wants the very last crock pot. Or every time I see some guy trampling some poor lady that fell down in the aisle because he needs a 50-inch TV. I'm reminded that coveting is alive and well in the United States, isn't it? But in God's economy, this should be something that should be very far away from our hearts because we found everything that we need in Jesus Christ. I mean, if God truly has sent his son to live, to die, to rise from the grave, to conquer in that death and resurrection every carnal desire, every insecurity that we could ever possibly have, that, that, then coveting something, wanting something so badly that in the Babylonian's case you're willing to kill people to get it or in our case we're willing to start a rumor about somebody or we're willing to throw somebody over under the bus. That is proclaiming to God that, God, your presence in our life is not enough. I am overwhelmed my, by my desire for more stuff. And what a statement to make to the God that has not only created us, but that has purchased us by dying on a cross and rising from the grave for our sins. So that first way that greed creeps into our life, it's very clear, is through covening. Now that second way, here it is, it's a lack of purpose. It's a lack of purpose. Where do we see that? Well, look at just those next three words as we just pick up where we left off. It says, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, verse 6, for how long? For how long? Stop right there. There's like this intermission In this verse, it's kind of a break is the way that the ESV takes it. Where God is kind of asking, how long are these Babylonians going to be like this? Now remember, these are the people that God is going to use. You know, this cycle for them is one that needs to end. It needs to be done away with. And the point is that the cycle is one that seems to be going on and on and on. It seems like it has no end. It seems like it's generational. It seems like the Babylonians who God is condemning have this unending lack of satisfaction and a lack of purpose that causes them to live a life that is not pleasing to God. And that in this specific case is causing them to be greedy, since that's what this woe is about. But no matter, I bet you would agree with me that, that when we forget why we are here, when we forget that we have breath in our lungs to do what? To glorify God and to enjoy his presence in our life forever. When you forget that, you'll be willing to pursue and to do all kinds of things that are not honoring to God. And you know what? The book of Ecclesiastes, if you've ever studied that book, it actually teaches that if God doesn't exist, if the Bible isn't true, you know, if, the go- if the gospel isn't real, then it makes perfect sense for you to act just like that. If all you have is life right now, if there's no afterlife, if there's no judgment, if there's no real purpose in life, if you are just an accident of evolution over the course of millions of years, if you're just an animal with no soul and when you die there is just nothingness, if that's really what reality is, then you have absolutely every reason to live just like the Babylonians. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, is the way the author of Ecclesiastes puts it. But if God does exist... And if the gospel is true, and if Christ really did rise from the grave, if we really are going to be held to account for our lives, if we really do have a purpose, is what I'm trying to say, then an unending desire for more, which is what greed is, should be the farthest thing from what characterizes the life of a follower of Christ. In Segovia, Spain, there's an ancient aqueduct that was originally built to bring clean cold, crisp water from the mountains into that growing city. It's been built about 1900 years ago in 109 AD, and for 1800 years, so nearly 60 generations of people had been drinking from the water that was coming. Then there came a generation who decided, they looked at the aqueduct and they said, this is such an amazing marvel of ancient achievement, I mean, this is such an amazing engineering feat. And it is, by the way. But they decided it's such an amazing engineering feat that it needs to be preserved for children as a museum piece so that the generations after us will still be able to come and to marvel at this aqueduct that the Romans built. So they laid their modern plumbing, they gave the ancient bricks a rest, and they took the aqueduct out of commission. And when you believe that when they took that aqueduct out of commission, it began to crumble. The sun beat its mortar, the bricks and the stone began to sag. It just began to literally fall apart. It would never be the same. The point is that for 1800 years, that aqueduct was functioning exactly as it was designed and created for. And when you take away that purpose, it began to deteriorate. It began to fall apart. Well, guess what? We are the exact same way. We do have a purpose in living. You have a purpose in being alive. To be exact, your purpose is to glorify God and enjoy his presence in your life forever. And when you don't know that, when you're not pursuing that purpose, you are, spiritually speaking, you're falling apart. The spiritual mortar on your bones is cracking. The rocks are are crumbling. The rocks are beginning to sag and break apart because you're not operating in the way that God created you to operate. That went for the Babylonians 2,600 years ago, and it goes for every person that you know, and even every single person sitting in this room today. Greed is simply one way that a lack of purpose manifests itself in our lives. So first, coveting. Second, a lack of purpose. And now the third way that greed creeps into our lives, here it is, it's manipulation. It's manipulation. God now tells us about the manipulation present in the Babylonians. Because look with me now at the very end of verse 6, picking up right where we left off, running through to verse 8. What does it say? It says, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. So the idea is that you're doing whatever you can to make people pledge you some amount of money or some amount of materials. You're kind of a loan shark. You know, you desire for people to be in debt to you. You desire for people to be subject to you. You desire to be an authority over them. Then God actually warns about the result of this. How does this play out? Well, it's not good for the greedy because God says in verses 7 and 8, let's pick up and read that now. He says, Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So the picture seems to be first that they would do whatever they can. They would would manipulate people for their own good to get them under a debt to them. But that God's point is that those who do that are going to eventually meet their fate. Those that have been placed under your your power, they're going to rise up and they're going to take back what was naturally, theirs. They're going to destroy the wicked. So there's an element there that God is condemning a culture that is willing to exploit and control and manipulate other people for their own gain. And that goes on a cultural level, and that goes on a societal level, but I think that goes on an individual level as well. We are not people who do whatever it takes to win. We're not. We're not people who do whatever it takes to win. That's not the people that we are. We are not people who are willing to, To sell other people out or to throw them under the bus or whatever idiomatic phrase that we want to use. We're not people that are willing to do that to get our way, to fulfill our covetous desires. That's not what being a Christian is all about. Rather, being a Christian means that you're often going to be the person that is manipulated. You're often going to be the person that is taken advantage of. And there's no doubt about it. We all know what it's like to be manipulated, right? And if you think that this isn't evident in probably every single one of our lives, I'll just let you know that I see it almost on a daily basis, just in the lives of my children as I watch them grow up. We're at this stage right now where Shasta knows this. Our youngest daughter, who is going to be three in just a couple of weeks, she is every night trying to climb into bed with us. Y'all have dealt with that. you know. I don't know how you break him of it. Um, and she waits till we're asleep. It was about three o'clock this morning, and the house is dark, and she creeps into our bedroom, and she climbs in, and she always wakes me up because she always tries to steal my pillow. So I normally hear her you know, screaming, not screaming, but running as fast as she can through the house to get to our bedroom, and then she yanks my pillow out from underneath her, on my head. Well, we're, we're trying to break her, of it. we know that it's not right. But this last Thursday night, she climbs in. She starts to steal my pillow, and I say, London, you got to go back to your own room. You have to start sleeping in your own bed. We've had this discussion so many times before, and that's when she snuggles up close to me, and she puts her little nose right up against mine, and she says, but Daddy, I love you what she said and I know that that was nothing more than manipulation and it worked by the way because I gave her a kiss and I got up and I went to the couch and by the way she did not follow me which means she didn't care about sleeping next to me at all she just wanted a big bed and a nice pillow. But look, as God looks at the Babylonians, who, remember, haven't yet rose to power, this is a forward-looking statement. This is a prophecy, still 20 years in the future. But as God knows how they are going to act and operate, their desire for more land and more money and more possessions will grow to the point that they're willing to do absolutely whatever it takes to get what they want. To move themselves ahead of the pack. And I hope that I don't have to tell you that a life that is following Christ You know, a life that is following Jesus is a life that values people and it values relationships more than it values, well, than it values any other tangible asset. And Just the accumulation of more and more stuff, everything that revolves around greed. So I want you to watch out for how a desire to manipulate others can be evidence of greed in our hearts and our lives. So let's begin to to wrap this up. Boy, I know that we've only looked at three verses this morning, and as we cover these woes, we're going to cover one woe every week. So This is the first of of five woes total. We're going to be covering a very small amount of text each one of those weeks. But we've seen these three ways that greed creeps into your life. I challenge you to be honest with yourself and to think, you know, maybe these are present in your life. Maybe these are maybe just in the infancy stage, but maybe they're there. Maybe you just admit that. Maybe you just say that, that they're there. They are, first, coveting. Second, it was a lack of purpose. And third, it was manipulation. Next week, we come back and we see that second woe that God gives us where God warns us about the danger of comfort and the danger of allowing ourselves to be in a spiritual rut where we just kind of go through the motions and we don't really have our hearts in worship and our hearts in our pursuit of God. Now, this certainly is not everything that can be said about greed, not even close, or it's not everything that can be said about how to get rid of it, but hopefully it will help us to at least be mindful that this is possibly indeed um, present in our lives. Well, let's just say that maybe, just maybe, every single one of us, with no exception, sees at least a pinch of this present in us. Maybe it was the coveting, Maybe it was the lack of purpose, maybe it was the ma- manipulation, whatever. But let's just say that none of us has completely arrived and all of us have work to do in this area. Let's just assume that that's the truth. The question now really is what do we do about it? You know, How do we rid our lives of, of covetness and a lack of purpose and manipulation? How do we ensure that of all the things that individuals, all the words that individuals could use to describe us, greed is not one of them? How can we ensure that? Well, I've got five thoughts, just five ways in closing to actually help us fight against greed in our lives. If you're doing the fill-in thing, I'm going to go through these quickly, so be ready. Number one, be generous. Be generous. A great way to combat greed in your life is to ensure that you have things in place, processes in place, so that you don't have an opportunity to be greedy. You know, be generous. Be willing to give whenever you have the opportunity. Number two, pray about it. Pray about it. And I know it's cliche. I know we say that we need to pray to combat everything, but it's cliche because it really is true. Like if you have a greedy heart, if you can see these elements in your life, a great way to combat that is to take a knee before the throne of God and beg God to correct your heart. So pray about it. Number three, avoid unnecessary temptation. Avoid unnecessary temptation. What do I mean when I say that? Well, if you've ever heard of the concept of stumbling blocks in the Bible, the idea is that there are sometimes things in our life, sometimes we place them there, sometimes other people unintentionally place them there, where they just kind of cause us to, to spiritually stumble. Well, if we're wise and if we're thinking ahead, if we recognize that, hey, greed is something that I struggle with and you know, holding on to everything that God has given me is really something that, that is, has, has kind of wrestled its way into my life, you should really be aware of that to the point that you will avoid unnecessary temptation. You will, you will do everything that you can to avoid the, the temptation of holding on to what God has given you. So, I'll just give you an example. Um, some of you probably should avoid gambling like the plague. Now, I'm not saying that any of us should run to gambling, Certainly not saying that, but some of us are especially prone to enjoy gambling aren 't we? My mother was one of those people. My, my parents were dirt poor, but every time my dad got gas, she was buying a scratcher ticket every time she loved it, she enjoyed it and i 've got some of that in me, so you know what i don 't even like to i didn 't even like to to go eat at a restaurant in the casino even if we weren't even going to go in a gamble. I didn't even like to go in there. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to have to face that temptation. I wanted to avoid that unnecessary temptation. Some of you probably need to close out your Facebook accounts. If your Facebook account causes you to covet over what other people have, if it causes you to desire to keep what you have and accumulate and just pile up stuff, then you probably need to close that out. Number four, deny yourself. Number four, deny yourself. Be conscious of the fact that for some of us this is a real issue. Now, for some people, it's not necessarily as big of an issue, but for some, it's a real issue. So be, so be willing to deny yourself. Number five, the last one, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. And that definitely is the most important one, if you ask me, because you know the, if, if you think about the faith that we have accepted, the faith that we are following, the God that we've embraced, the God that has really embraced us, we follow a God who, who sent his Son to this earth to take on flesh, to live a humble life, to give up everything that he had so that we could be reconciled to him. I mean, we follow a God who is the perfect example of what it's like to not be greedy. Don't we? That's the God that we follow. Now, I'll share this and, and then we'll be done. Maybe you know, maybe you don't, but this year marks the 500 Year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Now, some of you hear that and you're like, you checked out, like you hate history, you think it's boring, it's stupid, whatever. Okay, just give me a little bit of time here and maybe this one will be all right. But what was happening was at the turn of the 16th century, so several hundred years ago, Pope Leo X was the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. And there's absolutely no doubt about it that this guy was living an incredibly extravagant lifestyle. I mean, he's just buying all kinds of stuff. He was trying to build what would become St. Peter's Basilica. And while he's doing all of that, he realized that the Holy Treasury of the Vatican was running a little low. And he, of course, wasn't okay with this, so he decided to take on a fairly new form of church fundraising. Now, they didn't have... Uh, Krispy Kremes back then for fundraising. So um, the fundraising technique that they had then, that it's kind of recently developed at that point, was the selling of indulgences. And an indulgence was basically the Catholic Church saying that for X amount of money, you can have your temporal sins forgiven. So the idea was, we've got a basilica to pay for, The Pope really likes his nice wine and his nice paintings and all of that. This is quite the deal for you. Buy this indulgence and your sins are forgiven. That's the idea. And by the way, we've also got indulgences that you can buy that will pay for future sins. What a deal right? So you've kind of been wanting to commit adultery, but you've kind of been scared off because of hell. Uh, Well, here, let me tell you what we've got. We've got this indulgence that you can buy, and it'll take care of anything that's going to happen in the future. You can buy this, and you're good to go. It's kind of like a spiritual retirement fund. That's, That's really what it essentially was. Well, in Germany... There was this Catholic priest named Martin Luther, who when he found out about this, this was kind of like the camel that broke the, the or the the, the the piece of straw that whatever, you know what it is. And he finally saw that the selling of indulgence as that, and he wrote what was called the ninety-five thesis. He posted it to a church there in Wittenberg, Germany, and that Thesis, which outlined in detailed why, among other many other things that were happening, the selling of indulgences was immoral and not of God. And that thesis sparked what we called the Protestant Reformation. Protestant meaning protester, and Reformation meaning his goal was to reform the Catholic Church. And his goal was to reform the Catholic Church until they tried to kill him. And then he realized, well, maybe we're not going to reform it. Maybe um, we'll kind of just you know worship the Lord over here. And out of that came first. Lutherans and then Anabaptists, which is what we would call Mennonites today, and then later Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists and Pentecostals and the whole swath of what Christianity looks like today. But look, in that story, you have on one hand incredible greed. Greed that led what was then seen as the church in the world to do absolutely horrible detestable things, while in the same story you have people like Martin Luther who said, no, I will rather die than live that life. And that's what you and I have to resolve in our hearts when it comes to the constant desire for more and more and more. I would rather die. I would rather give up my life than to continue in this. Now here's what I believe, and I hope you believe it as well. If you ask God to read your heart of this, hear me, he will. He will. Get rid of it. He will conquer that greed. He will take that away. It may not always be easy for you. It doesn't mean that you're not still going to have temptations to pile up in your life. You know, to to covet that which other people have. To forget the purpose that you have breath in your lungs. But it does mean that God will sanctify you and God will draw you along in this process to make you more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. Now, for some of you, I'm going to be honest with you. If you have not chosen to follow Christ... If you had not yet made that decision to repent and to believe in Jesus, then, then you don't really have the power to conquer greed. Not in the way that we've talked about it up until this point. So we as Christians, we believe that, that, that God created the world, that initially everything seemed to be fine, didn't it? That mankind was in a perfect relationship with God, walking and talking with God in the garden, but that sin entered. And when sin entered the world and sin entered the life of mankind, that relationship with God was broken. And that as we continue reading through the Old Testament, we realize that there's really nothing that mankind could do to to, to bring that relationship back to a point of health. Their sin couldn't be overcome. There's nothing that they could accomplish. They couldn't give enough. They couldn't work enough. They couldn't serve enough. They couldn't pray enough. They couldn't do anything of enough to, to, to really take care of their sin, to overcome that sin and that rebellion that was in their heart and in their life. So God, 600 years after the prophet Habakkuk has, has prophesied, 600 years after this book is written, God would send his perfect and only son, Jesus Christ, to this earth, that Jesus would die on the cross. that when Jesus died on the cross, it's not just a hanging on the cross so that we have something to talk about, something to look at. God was, in that event, satisfying his own wrath for your sin. So that when you repent and when you believe, when you cast your faith on Jesus Christ and vow to the Lord that you want to follow him, God takes your sin. Your sin is placed on Jesus, and Jesus died the death that you were supposed to die. Now all of us, we really have a choice. Are we going to continue for all of eternity, for the rest of our lives, and finally find ourselves eventually at the throne of God, the judgment seat of our creator, with nothing to to say or nothing to do that can make up for the rebellion that we have had in our life and in our heart against him where we just have, have no option but to suffer his wrath for all of eternity or we can turn to Christ and be saved. Those are really the options. So my encouragement for you is if you know, you're deciding right now, I'd like to follow Jesus, I'd like to turn to Christ and be saved, there are a couple ways that we respond here at Freshwater. One is going to be um, on your Connect card. So you received a worship guide when you walked in this morning, and on the, the end of that worship guide is what we call a Connect card. There's a bubble at the top that says, I've chosen to follow Jesus. You can mark that bubble with that contact information and throw that Connect card in the giving baskets when they come by, and at that point um, we'll receive that and we'll contact you about what that looks like. The second way is during this next song, so we're going to stand and we're going to sing together, and as we sing, I stand in the foyer at the connect table, and if you want to step out into the aisle and come back and talk with me, I'd love to share with you about what it looks like for you to follow Jesus. And then the third way, of course, is just on your way out. I stand at the back door, and if you just want to reach out and say, hey, Josh, I've chosen to follow Christ. I'd like to hear more about what that looks like. I'd love to share with you about that as well. This is also the time in the service when we give you an opportunity to worship the Lord through giving. Um, last week, if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go on freshwaterjc.com, and if you find recent sermons, you can pull up the um, announcement regarding everything that we've got planned for uh, The property. If you don't know, we've purchased land just over the hill from here, and God has provided that for us. And now we're in a process where we're going to be eventually building on that property. I'll give you the short story. Could be breaking ground in the summer sometime in July, and it's possible we could be in a new building by um, Christmas, which is really exciting for us. I also really encouraged. Um, some of you to pray about. You know, I don't have any idea who gives in this church. I mean, I I see the final giving numbers just the same as you do. But I don't know who gives. I don't know who gives what amount. I don't know any of that. And frankly, I don't want to know that. But um, I just encourage you, you know, if you're new and if you're thinking, is this my church home? We are looking for 20 new giving units by the end of 2017. 20 new giving units. So a giving unit could be a single person who hasn't started giving to Freshwater up until this point and, and you'd like to become one of those 20 giving units. So you just catch me after the service and say, Josh, I want to be one of those giving units. You don't have to tell me how much. I don't want to know how much. It might be a young family, a couple. It might be whatever it might be. Um, but I'll just have you know that just last week, just, just opening that up, so just in one week we had four people, four giving units I should say, step on board and say, hey, I Want to be one of your giving units, so they're starting to give to Freshwater to support that work and support not only the ministry here in Jefferson City, but ministry all throughout the world, which many of you are very aware of, as well as that transition into a new building. So, as we turn to a time of giving, know that this is a time that we give as a result of, of just everything that God has done for us. We give not out of obligation, not because you know God is not not, not out of obligation. We do it as a result of just an, an act of worship. Lord God, for everything that he's done for us. Four ways that we give, the first being the giving baskets when they come by, the second being the giving kiosk located in the foyer, the third being the giving box also located in the foyer, and the fourth being online at freshwaterjc.com. So I will pray for us, and then we will sing, and we will give to the Lord as an an act of worship. Heavenly Father and Lord, we're thankful, God, for all that you've done for us, and I'm thankful for the scripture that we've got to study this morning. There's so much more. There's so much more that even could be drawn out of these three verses. So I am thankful, Lord, that you work in us, that you continue to work in us, that you have just sent the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what your Scripture says, what it means to us. And my prayer, Lord, is that when we leave, even if... Even if we think about this and we think, you know, Lord, I I don't think I'm a greedy person. I don't think that this is really present in my life. I just pray that somehow, some way, you would draw to our attention some part of our life that needs to change as a result of these three verses that we've examined. I thank you, Lord, for all that you do, all that you continue to do in our hearts and our lives. Ask all of this in Jesus' name.